As a young man of 27, Wilfred Woodruff was ordained a priest on November 5, 1834. Eight days later, he began a two-year mission in the southern states. One night, he and his companion found lodging with a family who provided them with a bare floor for a bed, which he described as pretty hard after walking 60 miles without anything to eat. The next day, they walked 12 miles through the rain until they came to the house of a man who happened to be a member of the Missouri mob. Brother Woodruff said, The family were about to sit down to breakfast as we came in. In those days, it was the custom of the Missourians to ask you to eat even though they were hostile toward you. So he asked us to take breakfast, and we were very glad of the invitation. He knew we were Mormons, and as soon as we began to eat, he began to swear about the Mormons. He had a large platter of bacon and eggs and plenty of bread on the table, but his swearing did not hinder our eating, for the harder he swore, the harder we ate, until we got our stomachs full. Then we arose from the table, took our hands, hats, and thanked him for our breakfast. The last we heard of him, he was still swearing. I trust the Lord will reward him for our breakfast. <laughs> At the end of the first year of that mission, he recounted that he had traveled 3,248 miles, held 170 meetings, and baptized 43 persons. His first mission to the southern states was followed by two brief missions to the Fox Islands off the coast of Maine and then subsequently two missions to England. During his latter mission in England in 1840, he acknowledged that through the blessings of God he had been an instrument in bringing over 1,800 souls into the Church within a period of eight months. Wilford Woodruff claimed to the Book of Mormon promise that God has provided a means that man through faith might work mighty miracles. Therefore, he becometh a great benefit to his fellow beings. My young brethren of the Aaronic Priesthood, I would remind you that our Father in Heaven not only wants you to be good, but to be good for something, to serve and bless the lives of others, and to become a benefit to your fellow beings. We read in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Inasmuch as our earthly quest for perfection involves becoming more like the Savior, then we too should increase in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Priesthood quorum activities and mutual activities with the young women, when carefully and prayerfully planned and discussed in the Bishopric Youth Committee, will help every young man and young woman to grow in wisdom as they gain a greater appreciation for the scriptures and the words of the living prophets and as they participate in mutual activities involving anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy. Counseling together in the Bishopric Youth Committee also provides valuable training for an entire generation of future leaders who will learn to work effectively together in councils. You young men will grow in stature and physical strength as you engage in folk dancing, sports, and wholesome, friendly athletic competition characterized by good sportsmanship. You will grow in favor with God as you engage in family history research, perform baptisms in the temple for deceased ancestors, and become a faithful home teacher, and frequently clean the chapel, visit nursing homes, and help beautify your communities. As you do so, you will exemplify King Benjamin's counsel that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, 
ye are only in the service of your God. A wise youth leader will place less emphasis on fundraising activities and a much greater emphasis upon rendering selfless service to others. You young men will increase in favor with man and become better prepared for missions, marriage, and future employment as you learn more about various careers and develop greater self-confidence through giving speeches, participating in original one-act plays, and talent shows. Our youth activities should reflect our belief that men are that they might have joy, and we should be willing to share that joy with others. Not long ago, I met a woman from the East who is now living in the Salt Lake Valley. She is a devout member of another Christian church, and I asked her how she enjoyed living among the Latter-day Saints. She said, My husband and I get along fine, but I worry about our teenage daughter. Each Wednesday evening about 7 o'clock, several girls in our neighborhood walk right past our home headed somewhere together, and not once have they stopped to invite our 14-year-old daughter to go with them. I said, My dear, this is your lucky day. I am in a position to get that problem fixed. She readily gave me her daughter's name and address, and we made contact with both the stake president and the seminary principal. Our friends and neighbors are children of a loving Father in Heaven who desires that all of us return to Him. Can we be content when not all the members of our quorum are in attendance Sunday morning? Surely we can extend ourselves to the less active and those of other faiths and warmly invite them to our young men and young women mutual activities, seminary, Sunday school classes, and sacrament meetings. When Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery received the Aaronic Priesthood under the hands of the resurrected John the Baptist, they received the keys of the ministering of angels. And so did you when you were ordained. I pray that you wonderful young men will not only be worthy to receive ministering angels, but that you, like young Wilford Woodruff, will become a ministering angel in the lives of others as you exercise your faith in working mighty miracles, thereby becoming a great benefit to your fellow beings. Now Satan would diminish your faith and dilute your priesthood power to work mighty miracles, but a loving Heavenly Father has provided you with providential protection, the gift of the Holy Ghost. In the first chapter of the Book of Mormon, we learn that as Lehi read the scriptures, he was filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Nephi later promises us that as we feast upon the words of Christ, the words of Christ will tell us all things what we should do. You may be facing decisions regarding a mission, your future career, and eventually marriage. As you read the scriptures and pray for direction, you may not actually see the answer in the form of printed words on the page, but as you read, you will receive distinct impressions and promptings, and as promised, the Holy Ghost will show unto you all things what you should do. Satan would have you surrender your moral agency to various forms of addictive behavior, but a loving Heavenly Father has promised you through his prophet Isaiah that through sincere fasting, as you subdue your physical appetites, He will help you loose the bands of wickedness and break every yoke. Claim that promise through fasting. Our emptiness will provide more room for the fullness of the gospel. The hollowing precedes the hallowing.
Scripture study and fasting preceded and followed by prayer really can change the night today. The entire life of the Prophet Joseph Smith demonstrates the power of prayer and the fulfillment of the Lord's promise that if thou shalt ask, thou shalt receive revelation upon revelation. One important revelation you will receive will be insight into how you, you can best touch the lives of others who have lost their way. In so doing, it is well to remember President Hinckley's wise counsel. The Holy Ghost is a testifier of truth who can teach men things they cannot teach one another. President Gordon B. Hinckley considers good friends to be one of the key ingredients in retaining new converts and in reclaiming the less active, and Robert Browning eloquently described how this is so. Were I elect like you, I would encircle me with love and raise a rampart of my fellows. It should seem impossible for me to fail, so watched by gentle friends who made my cause their own. Later in life, as President of the Church, President Wilford Woodruff declared that it does not make any difference whether a man is a priest or an apostle if he magnifies his calling. A priest holds the keys of the ministering of angels. President Woodruff said, Never in my life, as an apostle, as a seventy, or as an elder, have I ever had more of the protection of the Lord than while holding the office of a priest. The Lord revealed to me by visions, by revelations, and by the Holy Spirit many things that lay before me. My young beloved brethren, I pray that each of us, through our faith, will use our priesthood power to work mighty miracles through the sharing of the gospel and in serving others, thereby becoming a great benefit to our fellow beings. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This morning, I bear witness to the importance of prayer. Access to our Creator through our Savior is surely one of the great privileges and blessings of our lives. I have learned from countless personal experiences that great is the power of prayer. No earthly authority can separate us from direct access to our Creator. There can never be a mechanical or electronic failure when we pray. There is no limit on the number of times or how long we can pray each day. There is no quota of how many needs we wish to pray for in each prayer. We do not need to go through secretaries or make an appointment to reach the throne of grace. He is reachable at any time and any place. When God placed man on the earth, prayer became the lifeline between mankind and God. Thus, in Adam's generation, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Through all generations since that time, prayer has filled a very important human need. Each of us has problems that we cannot solve and weaknesses that we cannot conquer without reaching out through prayer to a higher source of strength. That source is the God of heaven to whom we pray 
in the name of Jesus Christ. As we pray, we should think of our Father in heaven as possessing all knowledge, understanding, love, and compassion. What is a prayer? The Savior gave us an example of the Lord's Prayer when He prayed, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. First, prayer is a humble acknowledgement that God is our Father and that the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior and Redeemer. Second, it is a sincere confession of sin and transgression and a request for forgiveness. Third, it is a recognition that we need help beyond our own ability. Fourth, it is an expression, an opportunity to thank our Heavenly Father and express gratitude unto Him as our Creator. It is important that we frequently say, We thank Thee. We acknowledge before Thee. We are grateful unto Thee. Fifth, it is a privilege to ask Deity for specific blessings. Many prayers are spoken while we are on our knees. The Savior knelt as He prayed to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. But silent prayers of the heart also reach heaven. We sing, Prayer is the soul's sincere desire, uttered or unexpressed. Sincere prayers come from the heart. Indeed, sincerity requires that we draw from the earnest feelings of our hearts when we pray rather than using vain repetitions or pretentious affectations, such as those condemned by the Savior in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Our prayers then truly become the song of the heart and a prayer, not only reaching God but touching the hearts of others as well. Jeremiah counsels us to pray with all our heart and soul. Enos recounted how his soul had hungered and that he had prayed all the day long. Prayers vary in their intensity. Even the Savior prayed more earnestly in his hour of agony. Some are simple expressions of appreciation and requests for a continuation of blessings on our loved ones and us. However, in times of great personal hurt or need, more may be required than mere asking. The Lord said, You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought save it was to ask me. Blessings sought through prayer sometimes require work, effort, and diligence on our part. For example, at times fasting is appropriate as a strong evidence of our sincerity. As Alma testified to the people of Zarahemla, 
I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things myself. And now I do know of myself that they are true. For the Lord God hath made them manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit. When we fast, our, we humble our souls, which brings us more in tune with God and his holy purposes. We are privileged to pray daily for the small and great concerns in our lives. Consider the words of Amulek, who admonished us to pray in our fields, over our flocks, in our houses, over our households, morning, midday, and evening, and to pray against the power of our enemies and the devil, to cry unto him over our crops, and to pour out our souls in secret in the wilderness. When we are not crying directly unto God, we should let our hearts be drawn out in prayer unto Him continually. Amulek's counsel in our day might be the heartfelt prayer of a wife. Bless Jason and keep him safe as he serves our country in this time of war. The prayer of a mother. Please bless Dear Jane, that she will make the right choices. The prayer of a father. Heavenly Father, bless Johnny in his missionary labors, that doors will be opened for him and that he will find the honest in heart. The lisping basic prayer of a child that I won't be naughty today or that everybody will have plenty to eat or that mommy will get well soon. These are sublime prayers that resound in the eternal mansions above. God knows our needs better than we can state them, but He wants us to approach Him in faith to ask for blessings, safety, and comfort. I have mentioned before an experience I had in the military in World War II. I hasten to say I was not a hero. But I did my duty. I endured and survived. I was assigned to a British Liberty ship sailing from San Francisco to Suez. I was on that ship for 83 consecutive days, except for a brief stop in Auckland, New Zealand. I was the only member of our faith on board. On Sundays, I would go alone to the bow of the ship with my little set of servicemen's scriptures and songbook. Amid the howling of the wind, I would read the scriptures, pray, and sing by myself. I did not try to bargain with the Lord, but I did pray fervently that if I could survive the war and go home to my wife and family, I would earnestly try to remain true to the sacred covenants I had made at baptism, to the oath and covenant of the priesthood, and to my temple vows. As a part of our tour of duty, our little cargo ship was ordered to tow a large burned-out oil tanker into Auckland, New Zealand. The tanker had no power and it was wallowing helplessly in the ocean. Although we never saw them, we knew that enemy submarines were lurking near us. While we were pulling that ship, we were caught in a violent storm, which we later learned sank many vessels. Because of the load we were pulling, we did not have enough power to go into the giant waves head-on. 
and our ship was thrown from side to side in the trough of the pounding seas. It would creak and groan and roll from side to side, almost capsizing on every roll. Of course I prayed, as I imagined others did. In time, the storm moved away from us. I am grateful for the staining influence and comfort of my prayers, which gave me then and since in other times of peril. The Savior told us, Pray in your families, unto the Father, always in my name, that your wives and your children may be blessed. In our day, the Church urges us to have family prayer every night and every morning. I once heard a primary teacher ask a little boy if he said his prayers every night. Yes, he replied. And do you always say them in the morning, too? The primary teacher asked. No, the boy replied. I ain't scared in the daytime. (laughs) Fear of the dark should not be our only motivation to pray morning and night. Family prayer is a powerful and sustaining influence. During the dark days of World War II, a 500-pound bomb fell outside the little home of Brother Patey, a young father in Liverpool, England. But the bomb did not go off. His wife had died, so he was rearing five children alone. He gathered them together at this very anxious time for family prayer. They all prayed earnestly, and when they had finished praying, the children said, Daddy, we will be all right. We will be all right in our home tonight. And so they went to bed. Imagine that terrific bomb lying just outside the door, half submerged in the ground. If it had gone off, it would have destroyed probably 40 or 50 houses and killed two or three hundred people. The next morning, the whole neighborhood was removed for 48 hours, and the bomb was finally taken away. On the way back, Brother Patey asked the foreman of the ARP squad, Well, what did you find? Mr. Patey, we got at the bomb outside of your door and found it ready to explode at any moment. There was nothing wrong with it. They were, we were puzzled why it did not go off. Marvelous things happen when families pray together. The Savior counseled that we should pray for those who despitefully use us. This principle is often overlooked in our prayers. The Prophet Joseph Smith understood it clearly. His petitions were fervent, his motives pure, and the blessings of heaven regular. Daniel Tyler, an associate of the Prophet, recalled an important occasion. At that time, William Smith and others rebelled against the Prophet at Kirtland. I attended a meeting where Joseph presided. Entering the schoolhouse a little before the meeting opened, And gazing upon the man of God, I perceived sadness in his countenance and tears trickling down his cheeks. A few moments later, a hymn was sung, and he opened the meeting by prayer. Instead of facing the audience, he turned his back and bowed his knees facing the wall. 
This, I suppose, was done to hide his sorrow and tears. I had heard men and women pray, especially the former, from the most ignorant, both as to letters and intellect, to the most learned and eloquent. But never until then had I heard a man address his Maker as though he was present, listening as a kind father would listen to the sorrows of a dutiful child. Joseph was at that time unlearned, but that prayer, which was to a considerable extent in behalf of those who accused him of having gone astray and fallen into sin, was that the Lord would forgive them and open their eyes that they might see right. That prayer, I say, to my humble mind, partook of the learning and eloquence of heaven. There was no ostentatiousness, no raising of the voice as by enthusiasm, but a plain conversational tone as a man would address a present friend. It appeared to me as though in, in case the veil were taken away, I could see the Lord standing facing this humblest of all servants I had ever seen. It was the crowning of all the prayers I ever heard. As the hour of the Savior's death and resurrection drew near, he offered his great intercessory prayer. After commending his apostles to the Father and praying for them, he then prayed for all those who would believe on him through their word and pleaded with the Father for all of us. He prayed that we could all be as the one as he was one with the Father and that the world would believe that he was sent by the Father. No more poignant prayer was ever uttered than that given by the Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. He withdrew from his apostles and prayed to the Father, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. An important element of all of our prayers might well be the pattern of that prayer in Gethsemane, not my will, but thine be done. By this, then, we acknowledge our devotion and submission to the overriding purposes of the Lord in our lives. As he said, If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. What a glorious day it will be for each of us when we pray with confidence that if we ask according to his will, he heareth us. I sincerely hope that as we say our daily prayers, we remember to ask the Lord's blessings to continue to abide with our beloved leader, President Gordon B. Hinckley. No one, no one fully knows not even his counselors, how heavy his burdens and how great his responsibility. All this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Brethren, we remind you that the Tabernacle Choir broadcast will be from 9.30 to 10 a.m. tomorrow morning. The Sunday morning session will immediately follow. Daylight saving time begins tomorrow at 2 a.m. We encourage you to move your clocks ahead one hour before you retire this evening. Otherwise, you may discover that the meeting's half over when you arrive. As you leave this priesthood meeting tonight, please obey traffic rules, use caution, and be courteous in driving. We're very deeply grateful to the Men's Choir from BYU-Idaho for the beautiful music which they have provided. Following my remarks, this session will conclude with the choir singing, Hope of Israel. The benediction will then be offered by Elder L. Edward Brown of the Seventy. Now, my dear brethren, I want to speak to you very, very plainly this evening about a matter that I feel greatly concerned over. What a great pleasure and a worrisome challenge it is to speak to you. What a tremendous brotherhood we are as those who hold this precious and wonderful priesthood. It comes from God, our Eternal Father, who in this glorious dispensation has with His beloved Son spoken again from the heavens. They've sent their authorized servants to to bestow this divine authority upon men. Personal worthiness becomes the standard of eligibility to receive and exercise this sacred power. It is of this that I wish to speak tonight. I begin by reading to you from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 121, and I quote, The rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven, and the powers of heaven cannot be controlled or handled only upon the principles of righteousness. That they may be conferred upon us, it is true. But when we undertake to cover our sins or to gratify our pride, our vain ambition, or to exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness, behold, the heavens withdraw themselves, the Spirit of the Lord is grieved, and when it is withdrawn, Amen to the priesthood or the authority of that man. End of quote. That is the unequivocal word of the Lord concerning His divine authority. What a tremendous obligation this places upon each of us. We who hold the priesthood of God must stand above the ways of the world. We must discipline ourselves. We cannot be self-righteous, but we can and must be decent, honorable men. Our behavior in public must be above reproach. Our behavior in private is even more important. It must clear the standards set by the Lord. We cannot indulge in sin, let alone try to cover our sins. 
We cannot gratify our pride. We cannot partake of the vanity of unrighteous ambition. We cannot exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon our wives or children or any others in any degree of unrighteousness. If we do any of these things, the powers of heaven are withdrawn. The Spirit of the Lord is grieved. The very virtue of our priesthood is nullified. Its authority is lost. The manner of our living, the words we speak, our everyday behavior has a bearing upon our effectiveness as men and boys holding the priesthood. Our fifth article of faith states, We believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administering the ordinances thereof. Even though those in authority lay hands upon our heads and we are ordained, we may through our behavior nullify and forfeit any right to exercise this divine authority. Section 121 goes on to say, No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. Only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge, which will greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. Now, my brethren, those are the parameters within which this priesthood must find expression. It is not as a cloak that we put on and take off at will. It is, when exercised in righteousness, as the very tissue of our bodies, a part of us at all times and in all circumstances. And so, to you young men who hold the Aaronic priesthood, you have had conferred upon you that power which, as we've been reminded tonight, holds the keys to the ministering of angels. Think of that for a minute. You cannot afford to do anything that would place a curtain between you and the ministering of angels in your behalf. You cannot be immoral in any sense. You cannot be dishonest. You cannot cheat or lie. You cannot take the name of God in vain or use filthy language and still have the right to the ministering of angels. I don't want you to be self-righteous. I want you to be manly, to be vibrant and strong and happy. To those who are athletically inclined, I want you to be good athletes and strive to become champions. But in doing so, you do not have to indulge in unseemly behavior or profane or filthy language. To you young men who look forward to going on missions, please do not cloud your lives with anything that would cast a doubt upon your worthiness to go forth as servants of the living God. You must not, you cannot, under any circumstances, compromise the divine power which you carry within you as ordained ministers of the gospel. By way of warning and forewarning, 
the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles have set forth the following statement directed to you, quote, As missionaries, you are expected to maintain the highest standards of conduct, including strict observance of the law of chastity. You should never be alone with anyone else, male or female, adult or child, other than your assigned companion. Even false accusations against an innocent missionary can take many months to investigate and may result in disruption or termination of missionary service. Protect yourselves from such accusations by never being separated from your companion, even in the homes you visit. End of quote. You need not worry about these things if you will at all times observe the rules of missionary service. If you do so, you will have a wonderful experience, and you will return in honor to those you love without taint or suspicion or regret. <clears throat> when you return home, never forget that you are still an elder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You will become involved in the search for an eternal companion. You will wish to marry in the house of the Lord. For you, there should be no alternative. Be careful, lest you destroy your eligibility to be so married. Have a wonderful time, but keep your courtship within the bounds of rigid self-discipline. The Lord has given a mandate and a promise. He has said, Let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then there follows the promise that thy confidence shall wax strong in the presence of God, and the Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion. The wife you choose will be your equal. Paul declared, Neither is the man without the woman, neither without the woman in the Lord, neither without the man in the Lord. In the marriage companionship there is neither inferiority nor superiority. The woman does not walk ahead of the man, neither does the man walk ahead of the woman. They walk side by side as a son and daughter of God on an eternal journey. She is not your servant, your chattel, nor anything of the kind. How tragedy, tragic and utterly disgusting a phenomenon is wife abuse. Any man in this Church who abuses his wife, who demeans her, who insults her, who exercises unrighteous dominion over her, is unworthy to hold the priesthood. Though he may have been ordained, the heavens will withdraw, the Spirit of the Lord will be grieved, and it will be amen to the authority of the priesthood of that man. Any man who engages in this practice is unworthy to hold a temple recommend. I regret to say that I see too much of this ugly phenomenon. There are men who cuff their wives about, both verbally and physically. What a tragedy when a man demeans the mother of his children. 
It is true that there are a few women who abuse their husbands, but I'm not speaking to them tonight. I'm speaking to the men of this Church, men upon whom the Almighty has bestowed His holy priesthood. My brethren, if there be any within the sound of my voice who are guilty of such behavior, I call upon you to repent. Get on your knees and ask the Lord to forgive you. Pray to Him for the power to control your tongue and your heavy hand. Ask for the forgiveness of your wife and your children. President McKay was wont to say, No other success can compensate for failure in the home. And President Lee said, The most important part of the Lord's work that you will do is the work that you do within the walls of your own home. I am confident that when we stand before the bar of God, there will be little mention of how much wealth we accumulated in life or of any honors which we may have achieved. But there will be searching questions concerning our domestic relations, and I am convinced that only those who have walked through life with love and respect and appreciation for their companions and children will receive from our eternal judge the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. I mention another type of abuse. It is of the elderly. I think it is not common among us. I hope it is not. I pray that it is not. I believe our people, almost all of them, observe the ancient commandment, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. But how tragic it is! How absolutely revolting is abuse of the elderly! More and more we are living longer, thanks to the miracle of modern science and medical practice. But with old age comes a deterioration of physical capacity and sometimes mental capacity. I have said before that I have discovered that there is much of lead in the years that are called golden. <laughs> I am so profoundly grateful for the love and solicitude of our children toward their mother and their father. How beautiful is the picture of a son or daughter going out of his or her way to assist with kindness and benevolence and love an aged parent. Now I wish to mention another form of abuse that has been much publicized in the media. It is the sordid and evil abuse of children by adults, usually men. Such abuse is not new. There is evidence to indicate that it goes back through the ages. It is a most despicable and tragic and terrible thing. I regret to say that there has been some very limited expression of this monstrous evil among us. It is something that cannot be countenanced or tolerated. The Lord Himself said, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in Me, 
It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. That's very strong language from the Prince of Peace, the Son of God. I quote from our Handbook of Instructions. The Church's position is that abuse cannot be tolerated in any form. Those who abuse are subject to Church discipline. They should not be given Church callings and may not have a temple recommend. Even if a person who abused a child sexually or physically receives Church discipline and is later restored to full fellowship or readmitted by baptism, leaders should not call the person to any position working with children or youth unless the First Presidency authorizes removal of the annotation of the person's membership record. In instances of abuse, the first responsibility of the Church is to help those who have been abused and to protect those who may be vulnerable to future abuse." End of quote. For a long period now we have worked on this problem. We have urged bishops, state presidents, and others to reach out to victims, to comfort them, to strengthen them, to let them know that what happened was wrong, that the experience was not their fault, and that it need never happen again. We have issued publications, established a telephone line where Church officers may receive counsel in handling cases, and offered professional help through LDS Family Services. These acts are often criminal in their nature. They are punishable under the law. Professional counselors, including lawyers and social workers, are available on this helpline to advise bishops and state presidents concerning their obligations in these circumstances. Those in other nations should call their respective area presidents. Now, the work of the Church is a work of salvation. I want to emphasize that. It is a work of saving souls. We desire to help both the victim and the offender. Our hearts reach out to the victim and we must act to assist him or her. Our hearts reach out to the offender, but we cannot tolerate the sin of which he may be guilty. Where there has been offense, there is a penalty. The process of the civil law will work its way, and the ecclesiastical process will work its way, often resulting in excommunication. This is both a delicate and a serious matter. Nevertheless, we recognize and must always recognize that when the penalty has been paid and the demands of justice have been met, there will be a helpful and kindly hand reaching out to assist. There may be continuing restrictions, but there will also be kindness. Now, brethren, I suppose I have sounded negative as I have spoken to you this evening. I do not wish to, but I do wish to raise a warning voice to the priesthood of this Church throughout the world. God has bestowed upon us a gift most precious and wonderful.
It carries with it the authority to govern the Church, to administer in its affairs, to speak with authority in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to act as His dedicated servants, to bless the sick, to bless our families and many others. It serves as a guide by which to live our lives. In its fullness, its authority reaches beyond the veil of death into the eternities that lie ahead. There is nothing else to compare with it in all this world. Safeguard it. Cherish it. Love it. Live worthy of it. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven is my humble prayer as I leave my blessing upon you and extend my love. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My brethren, I'm honored by the privilege to speak to you this evening. What a joy to see this magnificent conference center filled to its capacity with those young and old who hold the priesthood of God to realize that similar throngs are assembled throughout the world brings to me an overwhelming sense of responsibility. I pray that the inspiration of the Lord will guide my thoughts and inspire my words. Many years ago, on an assignment to Tahiti, I was talking to our mission president, President Raymond Bodan, about the Tahitian people. They are known as some of the greatest seafaring people in all the world. Brother Bodan, who speaks French and Tahitian but little English, was trying to describe to me the secret of the success of the Tahitian sea captains. He said, They are amazing. The weather may be terrible. The vessels may be leaky. There may be no navigational aids except their inner feelings and the stars in the heavens. But they pray and they go. He repeated that phrase three times. There is a lesson in that statement. We need to pray. And then we need to act. Both are important. The promise from the book of Proverbs gives us courage. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. We need but to turn to the account found in 1 Kings to appreciate anew the principle that when we follow the counsel of the Lord, when we pray and then go, the outcome benefits all. There we read that a most severe drought had gripped the land. Famine followed. Elijah the prophet received from the Lord what to him must have been an amazing instruction. Get thee to Zarephath. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. When he had found the widow, Elijah declared, 
Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, O bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. Her response described her desperate situation as she explained that she was preparing a final and scanty meal for her son and for herself, and then they would die. How implausible to her must have been Elijah's response. Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the crucif oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did, according to the saying of Elijah. And she and he and her house did eat many days, and the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the crucif oil fail. If I were to ask you which of all the passages in the Book of Mormon is the most widely read, I venture it would be the account found in 1 Nephi, concerning Nephi, his brothers, his father, and the command to obtain from Laban the plates of brass. Perhaps this is because most of us, from time to time, pledge to again read the Book of Mormon. Usually we begin with 1 Nephi. We repeat that several times, sometimes during a year. In reality, the passages found therein portray beautifully the need to pray and then to go and do. Said Nephi, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. For I know that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of man save he shall prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the thing which he commanded them. We remember the commandment. We remember the response. We remember the outcome. In our day and our time, there are many examples concerning the experiences of those who pray and then go and do. I share with you a touching account of a fine family that lived in the beautiful city of Perth, Australia. In 1957, four months before the dedication of the New Zealand Temple, Donald Cummings, the father, was the president of the member district in Perth. He and his wife and family were determined to attend the dedication of the temple, although they were of very modest financial means. They began to pray, to work, and to save. They sold their only car and gathered together every penny they could, but a week before their scheduled departure, they were still 200 pounds short. Through two unexpected gifts of 100 pounds each, they met their goal just in time. Because Brother Cummings couldn't get time off work for the trip, he decided to quit his job. They traveled by train across the vast Australian continent, arriving at Sydney, where they joined other members also traveling to New Zealand, the land of the long white cloud. Brother Cummings and his family were among the first Australians to be baptized for the dead 
in the New Zealand temple. They were among the first ones to be endowed in the New Zealand temple from far off Perth, Australia. They prayed, they prepared, and then they went. When the Cummings family returned to Perth, Brother Cummings obtained a new and better job. He was still serving as district president nine years later when it was my privilege to call him as the first president of the Perth Australia Stake. I think it's significant that he is now the first president of the Perth Australia Temple. From the movie Shenandoah comes the spoken words which inspire, If we don't try, we don't do. And if we don't do, then why are we here? There are now more than 60,000 full-time missionaries serving the Lord throughout the world. Many of this vast throng are listening in tonight and viewing this priesthood session of General Conference. They pray and then they go, trusting in the Lord concerning where they are sent and trusting in their mission president as to where they serve within their missions. Among the many revelations concerning their sacred callings are two passages which are favorites of mine. Both are from the Doctrine and Covenants. The first is from section 100. You will remember that Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon had been absent from their families for some time, and they were concerned about them. The Lord revealed unto them this assurance, which is comforting to missionaries throughout the Church. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my friends. I like that title, my friends. Your families are well. They are in mine hands, and I will do with them as seemeth me good, for in me there is all power. The second is from the 84th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Whoso receiveth you, there I will be also. For I will go before your face, I will be on your right hand and your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts, and mine angels round about you to bear you up. Inspiring is the missionary service rendered by Walter Krause, who lives in Prenzlau, Germany. Brother Krause, whose dedication to the Lord is legendary, is now 92 years of age. As a patriarch, he has given more than a thousand patriarchal blessings to members living throughout many parts of Europe. Homeless following World War II, like so many others at that time, Brother Krause and his family lived in a refugee camp in Cottbus and began to attend church there. He was immediately called to leave the Cottbus branch. Four months later, in November of 1945, his country still in ruins, District President Richard Ranglack came to Brother Krause and asked him what he would think about going on a mission. Brother Krause's answer reflects his commitment to the Church. Said he, I don't have to think about it at all. If the Lord needs me, I'll go. He set out on December 1, 1945, with 20 German marks in his pocket and a piece of dry bread. One of the branch members had given him a winter coat left over from a son who had fallen in the war. That touched my heart. Another member who was a shoemaker 
gave him a pair of shoes. With these and with two shirts, two handkerchiefs, and two pairs of stockings, he left on his mission. Once in the middle of winter, he walked from Prenzlau to Kamin, a little village in Mecklenburg, where 46 attended the meetings which were held. He arrived long after dark that night, after a six-hour march over roads, paths, and finally across plowed fields. Just before he reached the village, he came to a large white flat area, which made for easy walking, and he soon arrived at a member's home to stay the night. The next morning, the game warden knocked on the door of the member's house, asking, Do you have a guest? Yes, came the reply. The game warden continued, Then come and take a look at his tracks. The large flat area on which Brother Krause had walked was actually a frozen lake. And sometime earlier, the warden had chopped a large hole in the middle of the lake for fishing. The wind had driven snow over the hole and covered it so that Brother Krause could not have seen the danger. His tracks went right next to the edge of the hole and straight to the house of the member without his knowing anything about it. Weighed down by his backpack and his rubber boots, he would certainly have drowned had he gone one step further toward the hole he couldn't see. He commented later that this event caused quite a stir in the village at the time. Brother Krause's entire life has been to pray and then to go. Should any of us feel inadequate or tend to doubt the ability to respond to a priesthood call to serve the Lord, let the divine truth be remembered. With God, all things are possible. Not long ago, I learned of the passing of James Womack, the patriarch of the Shreveport, Louisiana Stake, a dear friend. He had served long and had blessed ever so many lives. Years before, President Spencer W. Kimball shared with President Gordon B. Hinckley, Elder Bruce R. McConkie, and me an experience he had in the appointment of a patriarch for the Shreveport, Louisiana stake of the Church. President Kimball described how he interviewed, how he searched, how he prayed that he might learn the Lord's will concerning the selection. For some reason, none of the suggested candidates was the man for this assignment at this particular time. The day wore on. The evening meetings began. Suddenly, President Kimball turned to the stake president and asked him to identify a particular man seated perhaps two-thirds of the way back from the front of the chapel. The stake president replied that the individual was James Womack, whereupon President Kimball said, He is the man the Lord has selected to be your stake patriarch. Please have him meet with me in the High Council room following the meeting. Stake President Charles Cagle was startled, for James Womack did not wear the label of a typical man. He had sustained terrible injuries while in combat during World War II. He lost both hands 
and part of an arm, as well as most of his eyesight and part of his hearing. Nobody had wanted to let him into law school when he returned, yet he finished third in his class at Louisiana State University. That evening, as President Kimball met with Brother Womack and informed him that the Lord had designated him to be the patriarch, there was a protracted silence in the room. Then Brother Womack said, Brother Kimball, it's my understanding that a patriarch is to place his hands on the head of the person he blesses. As you can see, I have no hands to place on the head of anyone. Brother Kimball, in his kind and patient manner, invited Brother Womack to stand behind the chair on which Brother Kimball was seated. He then said, Now, Brother Womack, lean forward and see if the stumps of your arms will reach the top of my head. To Brother Womack's joy, they touched Brother Kimball's head, and the exclamation came forth, I can reach you! I can reach you! Of course you can reach me, responded Brother Kimball. And if you can reach me, you can reach any whom you bless. I will probably be the shortest person you will ever have seated before you. <laughs> Brother Kimball reported to us that when the name of James Womack was presented to the State Conference, the hands of the members shot heavenward in an enthusiastic vote of approval. Remembered were the words of the Lord to the prophet Samuel at the time David was designated to be a future king of Israel. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Brethren, whatever our calling, regardless of our fears or anxieties, let us pray and then go and do, remembering the words of the Master, even the Lord Jesus Christ, who promised, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. In the epistle of James were counseled, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Let us, as a mighty body of priesthood, be doers of the word, and not hearers only. Let us pray, then let us go and do. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. My beloved brethren of the priesthood of God, the responsibility of speaking to you tonight is overwhelming. I have prayed for inspiration and guidance and seek your understanding. One of the great myths in life is when men think they are invincible. Too many think that they are men of steel, strong enough to withstand any temptation. They delude themselves into thinking, it cannot happen to me. Borrowing a thought from Bertrand Russell, we are all like the turkey who wakes up Thanksgiving morning expecting lunch as usual. 
things can go wrong at any time. <laughs> Brethren, it can happen to any of us at any time. So much of our course in life is influenced by forces we only partly perceive. President Charles W. Penrose used to tell the story of an officer on the Titanic who stated that there was no fear of God, man, or devil because the Titanic was built so solidly it could readily withstand collisions with other ships or contact with any other force, including icebergs. The Titanic was, in fact, three football fields in length, twelve stories high and built of the finest steel. On that fateful night of April 14, 1912, other ships warmed of ice ahead. Yet the Titanic continued to increase her speed, cutting through the cold Atlantic Ocean. By the time the lookout sighted the iceberg, it was too late. The Titanic could not turn out of its way in time, and the iceberg scraped along the starboard side of the ship creating a series of punctures. Two hours and forty minutes later, the brand-new Titanic sank to the bottom of the ocean. Over 1,500 people were drowned. Usually one-eighth of an iceberg is above the waterline. The ice in the cold core is very compact, and it keeps seven-eighths of the iceberg under the water. As it was when the Titanic encountered the iceberg, so it is with us. We can often only see part of the danger that lies ahead. History is full of the examples of men who were gifted and able, but who in a moment of weakness threw away their promising lives. King David was a tragic example. As a youth, he was handsome, brave, and full of faith. He slew the frightening giant Goliath. He became king. He had everything a man could desire. But when he saw Bathsheba, he wanted her even though she was another man's wife. He had her husband Uriah the Hittite sent to the front of the hottest battle so that he would be killed. Uriah died in battle and David married Bathsheba. As a consequence of this evil deed, David lost his spiritual inheritance. For all the good David accomplished, much of it was negated because he allowed himself to succumb to a serious personal flaw. I once heard a man tell his sons, I can drive closer to the edge than you because I've had more experience than you. He thought he was in control, but he was really in denial. The trouble with using experience as a guide is that the final exam often comes first and then the lesson. Some people think their age and experience make them better able to understand temptation. This is a falsehood. I remember hearing President J. Reuben Clark tell of the time when one of his children was going out on a date. He asked them to come home at a certain hour. Chafing under the constant, urgent reminder, the teenager exclaimed, Daddy, what is the matter? Don't you trust me? His answer must have been shocking. He said, 
no, my child, I don't trust you. I don't even trust myself. Some things can't happen to us. I suggest we learn from President Spencer W. Kimball's counsel. Develop discipline of self so that more and more you do not have to decide and redecide what you will do when you are confronted with the same temptation time and time again. You need only to decide some things once. How great a blessing it is to be free of agonizing over and over again regarding a temptation. To do so is such a time-consuming and very risky." End of quote. Someone may rationalize by thinking, just one fix of drugs won't hurt. That may sound harmless, but please know how powerful drugs are. I quote from a user, There is no controlling drugs. They control you. The first time you usually feel nothing, but that's when it grabs you. Just one cigarette. Just see how it feels. But beware of the danger lurking here. Nicotine is highly addictive. As few as four cigarettes may be enough to set someone on a path to become a regular smoker. Just one can of beer. We don't, do not know our potential for alcohol addiction, but one drink usually leads to another. It is much better never to take the first drink. Then you know you won't be led to more. The purchase of just one lottery ticket. This is more subtle than other addictions. You may not think gambling is an addiction because it is not a substance taken into the body. But as someone recently wrote, those who gamble risk more than just money. Their lives and families are at stake too. Just one peek at a pornographic site on the Internet or a quick look at a centerfold of a racing magazine, that sounds so harmless. But we see it is so much harder to get rid of than what we take into our bodies. Many hardened criminals admit they got their start of crime by viewing obscene pictures. Some say that inappropriate entertainment now and again is okay. However, this so often desensitizes us to violence, improper sexual relations, vulgarity, taking the Lord's name in vain, and other associated evils. I have spoken at some length about the things you don't want to happen to you. Now let's consider some of the good things that you do want to happen to you. If you are willing to pay the price for success, good things, even great things, can happen to you, even beyond your fondest dreams and expectations. Often we do not even have a glimpse of our potential for happiness and accomplishment in this life and eternity because, as the Apostle Paul said, now we see through a glass darkly, but the lens can be lightened and become crystal clear through the influence of the Holy Ghost. The Savior promised us that the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance and guide you into all truth. 
We must recognize that our natural gifts and abilities are limited, but when augmented by the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Ghost, our potential increases manyfold. You need help from a power beyond your own to do something extraordinarily useful. You young men can have opportunities and receive blessings beyond your wildest dreams and expectations. Your future may not hold fame or fortune, but it can be something far more lasting and fulfilling. Remember that what we do in life echoes in eternity. Some of you young men may not yet have a strong testimony of the divine origin of this Church like your parents do. You may wish you could be more sure that Joseph Smith actually saw in vision the God, the Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, and that the Book of Mormon was truly translated from golden plates. You may have lingering doubts about the law of tithing, the law of chastity, or the word of wisdom. This is not unusual for some young men of your age. Your faith may not yet have been fully tested. You may not yet have had to defend your beliefs or your lifestyle. I assure you that great things can happen to you. You can receive an unwavering testimony that this is the Church of Jesus Christ and that through Joseph Smith the gospel has been restored to the earth in its fullness. But that testimony may not come until your faith has been tried. Many years ago, two general authorities called a very young man to be a new stake president. In his response, the new stake president said he would give total devotion to his calling and would not ask any of the members of his stake to be more devoted than he. Then he bore his testimony that he believed the gospel with all his heart and proposed to live it. Later at lunch, one of the general authorities asked this new stake president whether he knew absolutely that this gospel is true. He answered that he did not. The senior apostle then said to his fellow apostle, He knows it just as well as you do. The only thing that he does not know is that he does know it. It will be but a short time until he does know it. You do not need to worry. A short time later, the new stake president testified that following a spiritual experience, quote, I shed tears of gratitude to the Lord for the abiding, perfect, and absolute testimony that came into my life of the divinity of this work. Many of us do not have a full awareness of what we really know. Even though we have been taught the gospel, we may not be fully aware of what the Lord has put in our inward parts and written in our hearts. As young men of the covenant, you are heirs to great promises. You have the opportunity to become more than hewers of wood and drawers of water. I do not claim to have an absolute understanding of all the principles of the gospel, but I have come to know with certainty the divinity and authority of this Church. 
This came to me gradually, line upon line, precept upon precept. I now know that I know, just as you can come to know that you know. It can happen to you. Knowledge comes through faith. In our day and time, we must come to know the truthfulness of what was on the golden plates without seeing them. They are not available for us to see and handle as they were for the three witnesses and for the eight witnesses. Some of those who actually saw and handled the plates did not remain faithful to the Church. Seeing an angel would be a great experience, but it is far greater to come to a knowledge of the divinity of Savior through faith and the witness of the Spirit. You can also come to know that you, as a valiant Son of God in the premortal existence, it can happen to you, but it just won't happen automatically. You will have to exercise faith. The only way to acquire spiritual knowledge and keep it burning brightly is to be humble, prayerful, and to strive diligently to keep all of the commandments. At the opening ceremonies of the recently concluded 2002 Winter Olympic Games in Salt Lake City, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and the Utah Symphony Organ Orchestra performed a majestic musical piece written by John Williams, especially as the official musical theme of the games. It was entitled Call of the Champions. Tonight I wish to make a call to the champions. The stirring first words of this piece are Sidious, Swifter, Aldeus, Higher, Fortius, Stronger, which have been the official Olympic motto since 1924. Brethren of the priesthood, we live in a marvelous time. Never in the history of the Church have we had more witnesses of the truthfulness of this holy work. We have our detractors and critics, as we've always had. But never has the Church climbed higher, moved swifter, or been stronger to accomplish its mission. Now is the time for all of us to reach upward, move onward. It is the time for the call of the champions. In God's work, we too must be swifter, working with greater urgency, higher, striving for lofty spiritual goals, and stronger, relying on God's strength. It can happen to you. The sure way to have life's joys and blessings come to you is to follow our living prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley, so much good has come to us from our past prophets, but it is President Hinckley's voice that we need to hear and follow today, his counsel that we need to be obedient to so that the best things can happen to us. All of this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.